0: This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is not being brought to you by the New York Times. It's instead being brought to you by some moron at the New York Times who thought it would be a good idea to offer it to you for 50 cents a week. 50 cents a week. I do this thing that drives my partner Sarah crazy, where I always hold on to loose change and leave it in my pockets. I will then walk around the house and inevitably when I reach into my pocket to grab my phone or keys or a lighter or whatever else... Loose change, specifically dimes, for some reason, will fall to the ground where she will find them, sigh, and put them in the change jar by the front entrance to the house that I'm sure she spends a lot of time hoping I start to use. And then she will always say aloud, are you doing this on purpose? She has found dimes in couches, on the floor by the stove, under the bed upstairs, in the bed upstairs, and I am guaranteeing you that there is more than 50 cents of dimes on the floors of my home. Which means... That the spare change littered around my house could get me a subscription to the New York Times, and I'm willing to bet that loose change lying around your home would be more than 50 cents. Go to the New York Times to get started. Last week, I went to my uncle's funeral. More specifically, I got up on a Saturday morning and made a ton of sandwiches and arranged them on trays to bring to my aunt's house so that the 30 people in attendance could eat afterwards. My mother had spent the two days previous with my aunt buying beer and wine and getting her house ready for family and friends to gather and celebrate my uncle's life. And so on Saturday, after the service, I found myself surrounded by fully vaccinated family members I hadn't seen in an especially long time thanks to COVID and watched as everyone showed up with more and more food. My sandwich trays started to disappear under the mountain of food that was piling up. We were all in the backyard eating and telling stories and laughing and reminiscing, and several people were visibly moved, not by the sheer fact that they were attending a funeral, but that they were around other human beings for the first time in a year and a half, and I was one of those people. We were making plans for Christmas, making plans for Thanksgiving, and I'm not gonna get political, Because the last time I did that on this show, my inbox was flooded with actual death threats from right-wing Americans that disliked my seething hatred of Donald Trump. But I will say that if for some reason you aren't getting vaccinated, maybe the sheer fact that you can see your loved ones and know that you're safe from a virus that almost destroyed the world should be reason enough. Seeing that my brain is hardwired to constantly find stories for this show, on the drive home I was thinking about all of the food. The fact that we show up with food to funerals. The idea that eating is comforting, and so when I got home I did what I always do. I poured a glass of wine and started to dig into the history of food at funerals. And much to my surprise, it's a story that goes a lot deeper and a lot further back than I ever thought possible. I should probably point out that some things I talk about in this episode would probably not be suitable for children's ears, so if you're in the car, maybe wait till later. Also if you are squeamish about the word cannibalism, you may also want to skip this one. And so this episode is called It's Your Funeral. I'm Brian Clark and this is Let's Talk About Chef. <laughs> The story of eating at a funeral begins a long, long time ago. Scientists have found evidence that during the Paleolithic period, the thing you ate when someone died was the person that died. Now, yes, this is a type of cannibalism, but it was deemed a ritualistic cannibalism or endo-cannibalism. It's believed that ancient people ate the dead because, well, it was meat that was going to go to waste. And at a time in the story of us, Leaving meat to go bad when it's so hard to hunt for it seemed like a dumb idea. Endo-cannibalism was a ritual performed at funerals for loved ones. These rituals survived for tens of thousands of years and oddly enough popped up all over the world. In Papua New Guinea, a loved one was consumed to pass on their spirit to their descendants. And in the Amazon, a corpse was eaten by a family to show that a body is just meat A physical vessel for the spirit that leaves you when you die. You are not your body, you're your spirit. Similar traditions to this were spread out across the world, and in some ways they still exist to this day. But somewhere around 4,000 years ago in ancient Egypt, food became something more than a way to keep ourselves alive. It became important, symbolic. Egyptians started to leave food like bread and beer in tombs. Paintings of cattle and birds were painted on the walls, so that the spirit or family member that passed away would be able to be nourished on the images in the afterlife. The earliest known funeral where people ate food afterwards was in the 8th century in Antolia, or modern-day Turkey, where at King Midas' funeral, a massive feast of goat stew and alcohol was presented in his tomb for his spiritual nourishment as he went on to the great beyond. All of that food was then eaten by the people that attended the funeral. Then, the massive dinner table, dinnerware, and all of the leftovers were sealed in the tomb along with King Midas' body, and that was left undiscovered until 1957 by archaeologists from the University of Pennsylvania. By the Middle Ages, whenever a lord died, a ceremony called an averil was held, and that was an old English word for heir's ale. Essentially, all of the lords from surrounding lands would get together and toast the new air, and a massive feast would be provided because some people attending would be traveling from so far away, and also because the bigger your feast was meant you were more important. During these feasts, a sweetbread called Arval was given out to guests and servants. This was symbolic of eating the dead as well. Now... This idea of eating the figurative body of a person comes from religion, the whole eating body of Jesus thing at church, but it became something more. People believed in heaven and hell and didn't want their loved ones to go to hell, so they devised a really weird method to ensure that their family member would be able to get into heaven. And this was by eating their sin. More on that after this break. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Buzzsprout. If you have ever wanted to start a podcast of your own, there is no better time than now, and like I did, let Buzzsprout help you get started. Buzzsprout is the easiest way to host, produce, monetize, and maintain the podcast of your dreams. Essentially, just upload your episode, and Buzzsprout will instantly get it onto streaming platforms that you can join. They can show you up-to-the-minute statistics and analytics for your shows, and it's free for the first 90 days. For example, If I wanted to see where in the world the last episode of this show was listened to, I would simply go to my account at buzzsprout.com and click on the most recent episode, Stories of Fire, and there you go. Stories of Fire was listened to in 99 different countries and 2,453 different cities, from the United Kingdom to France and India, Croatia vietnam hong kong russia china lithuania you can literally see your show grow around the world and it's probably my favorite part of buzzsprout if you want to get your podcast started go to buzzsprout.com and tell them let's talk about chef sent you there and now back to the show Eating someone's sin was a way to make sure that they got to heaven. And how did someone go about sucking the leftover sin from somebody's body? By making and eating a corpse cake. Essentially, make a bread dough and let it rise on the chest of your dead relative and then bake it. Sin eating evolved in Ireland in the late Middle Ages to be an actual job performed by poor people. Basically, a corpse cake was made, and then eaten by a poor person from the town whose job was quite literally being the town's sin eater. This person would eat the bread, consuming any trace of sin left behind, and after consuming the sin of the dead, therefore giving the family the assurance that their loved one was going to go to the great beyond, the family would then proceed to kick the crap out of the sin eater and throw them out on the street outside of the church. After they threw out the sin-eater, the family would then eat bread over the body of the deceased. And just so you know, it's been documented that the tradition of sin-eating survived in America in the Appalachian Mountains until the 1900s. Now, as societies and cooking methods evolved over the years, so did food at funerals. Funeral biscuits emerged in the 18th and 19th centuries and were treated as souvenirs in England and the United States. The biscuits were usually made of shortbread and stamped with a decorative design or the name of the person who died. It's believed that the American settlers got this tradition from the Dutch settlers who introduced death cookies to their funerals. American settlers would bake cookies and stamp them with crosses or skulls or even the image of a rooster, which represents resurrection. Stamping a rose onto a cookie was meant to indicate that the deceased was a child, and this is where bringing flowers to funerals comes from as well. You might think that death cookies sound like a weird ancient custom, but in Italy to this day it's common to eat cookies in the shape of bones at funerals or even vital organs. In Asia, grain is not as important as rice, which is the symbol of life, and rice is one dish that is always present at every funeral, regardless of social class. Chicken is also very important in Chinese funerals, as eating it is supposed to ensure that the deceased soul will be able to fly to heaven. Duck is also usually served as it's supposed to protect the person's soul when they cross the three rivers along the path to the afterlife. Traditional Chinese funerals to this day still engage in sin-eating, with some families asking monks to transfer the sins of the dead to dishes of dim sum, which are then eaten by modern-day sin-eaters. The only difference is that unlike the Irish, the Chinese won't beat the crap out of the sin-eater. In Mongolia, The custom is to eat a lump of sugar dipped in milk after a funeral, which is meant to purify them after coming in contact with death. With or without sin-eating, it is a common practice to eat something sweet at a funeral. I am sure if you've attended a funeral, you will see, like I did the other day, lots of cakes and cookies and sweets, and that comes from the tradition of purifying your soul and from the ancient tradition of burying the dead with pots of honey. Civilizations from China to Africa buried their dead with honey. Even the ancient Greeks buried their dead with honey cakes, which were supposed to be a bribe for the three-headed dog Cerebus at the gates of Hades, so you could sneak past him. It should come as no surprise that we eat when we mourn because it brings us comfort. Eating when we're sad is something that humans are great at doing, and it helps. Food traditions run very, very deep, and every culture that has ever existed has had some similarity when it comes to burying our loved ones. But it is slightly amazing that the reason I made sandwiches for my uncle's funeral, the reason we are gathered around and ate, was a direct link to the past when people would gather and eat the dead to show that our bodies are just vessels for our spirits. If you knew my uncle, you would know that he would have been horrified at that. And that makes me laugh. We're all going to die one day. It's the one thing we absolutely all have in common, and that's fine. Now, we may not gather around to eat bread that was proofed on the chests of the deceased anymore, and we may not get to beat the crap out of someone we paid to suck the leftover sin out of your grandma, but we do gather and we do eat, and we do do something that has been done forever. We say goodbye with food. And so, on that somber note, I would now like to walk you through what I want done for my funeral, in the event when I die. There will be no religious service, and it will take place at a venue that is private but can also house everyone in attendance, like a huge cottage or campground or a shining-type hotel situation that will be rented out privately. Friends and families will gather wearing whatever clothes they want. The music will be blaring, and it will be loud. There will also be a New Orleans-style brass band. There will be obscene amounts of bourbon and wine and kegs of Guinness. The party will be catered by every chef friend I still have alive who will cook whatever they want, each one trying to one-up the other. If there's not lobster thermidor next to oysters next to wood-fired pizza next to duck confit, I'm going to be pissed. Tables will be covered with food and drink and people will take turns telling ridiculous stories about me. It will be an evening of the roast of Brian Clark. A bonfire will be made and the party will go on into the evening and everyone will crash and be hungover the next day and happy and full and just to be safe. I will be laid to rest with honey cake to trick Severus, a pot of honey, a loaf of bread, cows and pigs and bottles of wine will be painted on the walls of my coffin next to a bucket of fried chicken and rice and duck. And then because I'm fairly certain that proofing bread on my chest will be illegal at this point, a thin loaf of bread will be cooked in a wood-fired oven and symbolically fed to producer Tim, who will then be the sin eater, and everyone will take turns beating him with a pool needle because I'm Irish and that sounds hilarious. Funerals are a fact of life. We don't know when it's going to happen when we die, but we all are going to. And you know what? I kind of take comfort in that. It's something we all have in common. But just to be safe, I'm going to take a page out of thousands of years of ideas and traditions from across our silly little planet and cover my ass. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written and hosted by me, Brian Clark. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I want to thank the New York Times and Buzzsprout for letting me talk about them this week, and especially thank you for listening. If you want to spread the word about Let's Talk About Chef, which is the only reason that this show has grown to be what it is today, let a friend or someone in your life that you think would enjoy it know that they can find all episodes on letstalkaboutchef.com or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. That's enough for me, and so, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service, and have a great week. Oh, and do yourself a favor, get vaccinated.
1: This is the first day of my life. Swear I was born right in the doorway. I went out in the rain, suddenly everything changed, they're spreading. Blankets on the beach Yours is the first face that I saw I think I was blind before I met you And I don't know where I am, I don't know where I've been But I know where I want to go And so I thought I'd let you know Yeah, these things take forever, I especially am slow But I realized that I need you, and I wondered if I could come home